Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a roadmap to the reopening of Hamilton. Will China retaliate against Canada for its decision on the Huawei CFO? And Donald Trump is now fighting with Twitter. Is he not shooting the messenger? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. A roadmap to reopening Hamilton's economy following this pandemic has been presented to Council. Emergency Operations Center Director Paul Johnson says the strategy is driven by the Ontario government's emergency orders and lays out a gradual plan for the reopening of municipal facilities and the restarting of programs and services. To talk more about all of this, Paul Johnson, Director of our Emergency Operations Center, City of Hamilton, and he is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, glad to join you this afternoon. So, uh, boy, we've been talking about this uh, for 11 weeks now, Paul, it seems. Uh, how has the attitude changed around the operations center uh, from, say, week two, four, six, eight, to where we are now? What's the focus at this point? What's the challenge? Well, what's really shifted is we are trying to think about what the future holds, and that's very difficult. In the early stages, we were reacting to, we need to close down things. We need to have less things available in our community. We need to keep people at home, as close to home as possible, and support essential and critical work. Um, It wasn't easy, but it's a lot more straightforward. The challenge we're in now, as we spent the last couple of weeks developing the roadmap that was presented yesterday to Council and today to the community, uh, is that there isn't a time frame for when we're doing things. Everybody would like to know that it's on Tuesday, July to whatever, that we're going to have this happen. And I used an example of that yesterday. The extension of the emergency orders uh, through to June 9th, uh, there was certainly a sense that maybe some things would start to loosen up. But I think what happened on the weekend, particularly in Toronto and and people's inability to understand that the physical distancing is really critical, had people go, whoa, we got to wait a little bit case counts are still higher than we'd like to see. So a lot of this is driven by what the virus is doing. A lot of what the virus is doing is being driven by our behavior. And so those are variables that it's very tough to put a time frame to. So what we tried to do instead is say, when the time is right, here's what you can expect. And that's very much what we got into yesterday. So basically, people have to understand in order to succeed and make it to the next stage, we have to be successful in the first. We do. And the good news is it's very simple what we need to do. We need to follow those guidelines that stop the spread of this in its tracks. And the big part of that is physical distancing. If those droplets cannot find a way into our body, there is no way for us to just naturally have COVID-19. We need to be touching surfaces where those droplets have been and then touching our face, our nose, our eyes, our mouths. We need to be, you know, in close contact with people. Those are the ways that this happens. Uh, And what we're finding is that there are simple messages, but we're still in that training phase of making sure that those stick. So stay two meters apart. Make sure you're constantly washing your hands. Uh, Soap and water is good if you don't have it. The sanitizer is, is fine. Don't touch your face as much as is humanly possible to avoid. And obviously, if you start to feel sick, um, make those calls to health professionals and understand what to do next. Don't have this as an opportunity where you may yourself be be spreading it. So if we follow some very simple rules, uh, that spread is going to stop. Now, some of the spread still happening in congregate settings, and that's a, a little bit of a different story. But from a community base, we need to make sure that we're doing the right things uh, to stop that happening in the community. 
Um, obviously, as you mentioned, there was a situation in, in a Toronto park last uh, weekend which have uh, people concerned and as a result has maybe slowed down the advancement of, 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 of whipping through these stages. Uh, we've seen shots that uh, in that park uh, in Toronto, they have now drawn uh, circles. Uh, which I guess are, are, are two meters apart and, and the same in diameter in order to keep people uh, spaced evenly apart. In other words, stay in your circle. Uh, any thoughts of Hamilton doing anything like that? Have we got to that point? Well, not yet. Uh, we haven't had a situation where we see such an egregious example of, of the non-physical distancing. I think those are interesting ideas. I, I do know that our folks are thinking about it, not so much as in doing it today, but as we move closer to the summer and we know there'll be more activities happening and people will just be out, you know, doing even more than they are today, uh, that some of these things might be useful tools to help people understand. I think anything we can do to make it fairly straightforward for people to get the, the fact that two meters is X distance. And I, I think maybe we, we share that you should stay two meters apart, but uh, sometimes it's hard for us to gauge what two meters is. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a little more than six feet. So if you're six feet and a little bit more, it's you lying down, that's the distance. And often people are good with about a meter, but getting to that two meters seems like a long way. We're social people, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, getting to that full two meters, sometimes these things are useful. And, and I love the kids in our, in the neighborhood I live. A lot of them have been drawing with the chalk art on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. what two meters is. And, uh, I think maybe a bit of that's going. So some of these cool ideas that are emerging, uh, fairly straightforward. We might be looking at some of those if we need it. But the good news is in Hamilton, people have really been respecting this. It's a few of the hot spots where even circles aren't going to help us. People still wanting to try and get to waterfalls and things where there just isn't the ability to physically distance. They're closed. But for some reason, still people want to flock there. <laughs> and uh, that's more of our challenge. Uh, you know, the, the park, it almost looks like a giant twister mat, except obviously the opposite is happening here. You're yeah. not supposed to touch anybody. Uh, you talked about the falls, uh, Paul. Uh, obviously, they are closed. Uh, how big of an issue has that been? Are people still trying to sneak around in there? They are. I mean, Albion Falls. Now, the, I can take some comfort in these were a problem pre-COVID. So in some ways, it's, yeah. it's not something that's changed. Uh, but But places like Devil's Punch Bowl, Albion Falls, we had uh, some others today where people are still trying to go. The reason they're closed is simple. The paths that are there are often very narrow. They will not allow for the kind of physical distancing. And then, of course, when you get to the falls area, it's a natural place to gather, and the gathering spots are usually quite small. So, again, we're a city of waterfalls. We would love to be back doing what we normally do around waterfalls. It's just not the safest way to, to behave. So the good news is a lot of other things have opened up, our trails, our parks. You know, you've got the Hamilton Conservation Area moving forward with their reopenings of conservation areas. So I think there's lots of options. And I just encourage people to perhaps let's fixate on the things that aren't available because it's a much smaller list right now. Focus on the things that are available and maybe go explore something that you haven't explored before rather than trying to get through the fences and the barricades and use the stuff that's closed. You know, that's a very valid point, Paul. And, you know, we said that, I haven't really said that since back at the beginning of all of this. It's like, think of the stuff that you can do rather than the things that you can't do. Um, you, you talked about the roadmap and presenting this to council. What are the first few things? I can imagine, and, and obviously big issues, HSR, child care in the city. What can we expect as this initially rolls out? 
So what we can expect is that, uh, you know, buildings are going to be some of those later phases. You'll see more of the outside amenities opening up. You'll see more of the city activity in terms of business uh, happening rather than, you know, a good example of some of our inspections, rather than only being outdoor inspections and very emergency type inspections from a building perspective, let's say, we will be getting back more into the business of, of being on site and, and sometimes even being in facilities, but lots of social distancing and less people meeting and all those types of things. Uh, transit, we have to get right because we need to get back to collecting fares on transit. And we also need to increase the volume of people on transit. We have a very low level of people that are riding the buses now to keep distance. And that's why we've also encouraged people to put on their own masks when they ride transit because it'll be hard to keep that two meter separation. And then as we go through the summer, we expect that, you know, some of those facilities that are closed now may start to open uh, city hall, municipal service centers, those types of things. But again, when people arrive, it'll be very different. Lots of those markings on the floor that we see now in, in uh, grocery stores or pharmacies, uh, physical barriers at counters. So we'll uh, have people behind plexiglass, those types of things. And that's all in an ability to keep our workers safe, but also say to the public that we don't, we expect that you will keep that physical distancing up and uh, not have these places become uh, congregation settings. The other thing we did yesterday is flag that there's some of uh, these more challenging issues that are coming up because they're going to last a long time, regardless of what the reopening looks like. Issues around how we deal with homelessness and congregate settings like shelters and retirement homes and long-term care facilities will go on for a while. Uh, issues around transit and how we move around the city will be an exercise in getting people's comfort level back up. And then the other side is that we'll just have less people working in spaces because some of our facilities have too many people in too small an area, and uh, we need to spread that out as well. So the overall message was things are going to be slowly coming on board, and when they do come on board, they're going to be in a different way. Uh, but the good news is, is that for a lot of the city services that aren't center-based, rec centers or child care, things like those, we've been able to maintain a fairly high level of service. We're processing building applications. We're turning around, uh, you know, the other business of the city. We're out doing our maintenance. We're out doing road work and we're out doing grass cutting. We're getting things ready. And I, I think those are all good measures that we're taking. So you can still engage with the city. It's just in a different way. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, and, and, and it looks, you know, with the odd exception, of course, that we saw in that park in Toronto, it seems that most Ontarians are complying with this. It seems Hamiltonians are, are, are the same way. They're, uh, they're taking the advice of, of you and medical officers and such to, to keep two meters apart and such. What about the mask issue? How much of that do you think will be a issue moving forward as that appears to be the new norm uh, if we cannot keep that two meter uh, separation. Uh, you know, I think this is a cultural shift for us, uh, certainly in North America. In other places, you know, masks have been more a part of, of how people live their lives for a long time. Uh, we are uh, through, you know, you've heard our medical officer of health say it regularly, Dr. Richardson, that uh, she is completely supportive of the direction and the recommendation that when you cannot maintain that two meter physical separation that um, wearing a non-surgical mask, a non-medical mask is a, is a good idea. It needs to be done well and you need to be someone that should be wearing a mask. And I think this is the piece everybody always asks me, well, how come we just don't make it mandatory? And the answer is, well, that's tough because for some people, it's not possible to wear a mask yeah, yeah. and it's not encouraged to wear a mask. There are some other medical issues for young children 
Uh, it's not encouraged to wear masks. So I think where we're headed is very strong encouragement that this is the way that you can further protect others from you should you actually be uh, spreading the virus, be just in the early stages of being uh, contagious around that. Uh, you're protecting everybody else, and if everyone else does it, then, they're, then you're protected because they're protecting you, and we have that higher level of protection, particularly in cases where we're indoors, where we can't maintain that physical separation. And uh, Have we lost Paul? I think we've lost Paul. Uh, Paul I, are you there, Scott? Oh, oh, there you are, Paul. We just got you back. Okay, sorry. Continue on what you're saying. Sorry, I just was saying that, you know, it's really important in certain instances, transit, when you're in shopping malls and you, you know, you're, you're in tight quarters with some folks, um, that's where you need it. And what we're hearing, of course, is that remember when you're outside and you can physically separate, even if you walk by somebody, that's not where the high risk is. The high risk is when you decide to, unfortunately, like we saw in some other communities, sit for long periods of time very close to one another outside. It does increase that risk. So that's why that, that um, you know, we shouldn't worry about path, crossing paths or walking by somebody. It's really more in those when you spend a lot of time in close quarters that we might want to wear masks. All right, so here we are, Paul, heading into uh, another weekend or, or close to it, and it's not going to be a bit cooler than what it was uh, last weekend, but still uh, should be some sunshine out there. What message do you have for Hamiltonians as they're out and about this weekend? First message is keep what we're doing. We're doing a great job in Hamilton uh, in terms of, you know, this, this virus has hit us, and it certainly actually caused people to lose their lives. But overall, we're doing a great job, so let's keep it up, understanding how serious this is. The second thing is get out and enjoy the things that you can. So it comes back to that comment I made of there are things, there's even more things available to, you know, in, in this past week than were available three weeks ago. Go out and enjoy. Uh, have some opportunity to explore the community. Just do it safely. And and uh, the other thing I would say is if you do go somewhere and it's a little more crowded than you're comfortable with, then just go somewhere else. Yeah, <laughs> and good if point. we do those types of things, I think we can have some fun. We can enjoy, uh, you know, we can enjoy the outdoors. We can enjoy what this weather change is and we can keep safe. All right. Uh, think of what you can do, not what you can't do. Good advice. Paul Johnson with us, director of our Emergency Operations Center for the City of Hamilton. Paul, again, just pass along to everybody there uh, how appreciative we are for all the hard work that they're doing. And uh, kudos to all uh, for helping making this work in a very difficult time. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Supreme Court of British Columbia dismissed Huawei executive uh, CFO's argument that her case didn't meet the standard of double criminality, uh, which means that uh, it has to be illegal to charge in both countries, which obviously uh, she arrived at the decision that it was. Uh, This immediately drew sharp condemnation from both Huawei and the Chinese embassy uh, in Ottawa and again have threatened retaliation and such and, and who knows what that's uh, what form that is going to take at uh, this point. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Christian LaProyce, class of 1965, professor in leadership at the Royal Military College, director of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations at Queen's University and a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and is with us now. Christian, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Many debated uh, prior to this verdict coming down, uh, and it seemed almost that it was split. Nobody really knew which way this was going to fall, uh, on which side of this verdict. Are you surprised at the verdict yesterday? So, uh, 
I think, look, I'm, I'm not a law professor, so I'm probably not the best person to comment um, on this. But I think it shows that um, U.S. authorities did their homework before they um, uh, passed the evidence and warrant on to Canadian authorities, to CBSA, uh, to carry out this arrest. And I think it demonstrates the professionalism uh, of law enforcement, both in the United States and in Canada, in terms of also assessing that uh, the request from the United States in the best estimation of CBSA uh, met the requirements uh, for CBSA to uh, um, to execute that request. And so I think it confirms uh, the independence and professionalism uh, of law enforcement agencies in both the United States and Canada, um, as much can unfortunately not be said of their equivalence in China. Uh, many have talked about what happens now, waiting for the other shoe to drop, some sort of uh, China retaliation. Uh, then I've read articles that this is a bad time for them to retaliate, considering their image uh, on the world stage right now. However, that certainly hasn't slowed down their actions in Hong Kong. What are your thoughts on retaliation? What can we expect in your mind? So there's a couple dimensions to this. Uh, it's uh, China is looking um, weak and wounded at the moment, um, and as we know, is under considerable duress, um, both in terms of the leg- regime's legitimacy internally as well as its credibility externally. And so, the president uh, Xi will want to be seen um, as a strong man who is defending China's interest. And so, I think whatever retaliation. We will see whether it's in terms of bringing charges and trying the two Michaels um, or in terms of economic retaliation will, I think, be first and foremost for domestic audience rather than an international audience in order to shore up uh, a, um, uh, the regime's uh, credibility in the eyes of the Chinese population. And this is why I think it's important for us always to distinguish between Uh, China and the Chinese and the Chinese regime, because this is really about the Chinese regime and its elite political and economic interests. This is not about uh, China and Chinese citizens more broadly. Um, However, at the same time, there's a considerable deterrent effect, because, of course, China is already under considerable um, duress, and we know that the United States is looking to assemble sort of a global coalition um, uh, to stave off Chinese geostrategic efforts. And so if China goes after Canada, let alone goes after Canada hard and publicly, it will further reinforce in partner and allied countries' minds that China is simply not a world actor that behaves professionally and that China cannot be trusted um, and that its interactions with the global community will always be purely transactional, um, thus further reinforcing the efforts of sort of a global uh, effort and alliance in terms of deterring and containing China. So I think it'll be interesting to watch how the Chinese regime uh, opts to navigate uh, any potential retaliation um, also, considering that this verdict does not mean extradition, since, um, as the Foreign Affairs Minister, for instance, noted, um, the uh, Miss uh, Meng Wanzhou still has uh, at least two legal options left. Um, one is that she, the, the authorities need to demonstrate that uh, the evidence at hand warrants extradition, and the other, of course, her challenge that her rights were violated uh, upon arrest. So uh, she will be in Canada for many years to come, I would predict, until all her appeals are exhausted.
Uh, your thoughts on the picture that was staged on the front steps of the B.C. Supreme Court on the weekend uh, with, with various members of, of the family and Huawei and such holding the victory sign, I guess just assuming the case would go uh, in her direction, and even reports out of uh, Chinese media that said that, in fact, uh, it was looking good. How big of a blow is this to China? They did not see this coming? So this case is existential for Huawei and for the Chinese regime. If Meng Wanzhou is extradited, let's be very clear. Uh, the prosecutor is going to make her an offer. Um, they'll tell her that she'll be sp- either they'll prosecute her and she will likely spend a very long time languishing in a U.S. supermax uh, akin to Manuel Noriega and other people who have crossed um, uh, U.S. interests and uh, authorities internationally. Or she can unpack and tell U.S. authorities everything that she knows. And they will tell her that they won't tell her what they already know, but they will tell her that if she lies or she's untruthful, uh, then they will prosecute her anyways. And if she unpacks, this becomes an existential crisis for Huawei and for the Chinese regime because she knows a lot of stones to uh, uh, rocks to turn over. And I think uh, what is under those rocks uh, is deeply disturbing to the legitimacy of both Huawei and the Chinese regime. And so we can expect uh, that both Huawei and the Chinese regime will do anything and everything to prevent her extradition uh, to the United States. And look, this is not from a Chinese perspective. She is not just any one citizen. She's essentially the, mm-hmm. the equivalent of a crown princess, the crown princess of the Chinese pride and joy of the tech industry, however Huawei uh, ended up building its business empire. Um, And so there's also a deep, I think, personal affront that the Chinese elite feels because if Meng Wanzhou can get arrested and extradited, it means that pretty much any member of the Chinese economic and political elite um, is now, uh, that it's now open season on them in Western countries to go after them. And of course, we all know Uh, that uh, many members of the Chinese elite uh, don't uh, conduct themselves uh, in line with our expectations in terms of proper uh, proper conduct on financial matters and on business matters. And so I think this is also a real threat uh, to many individuals in China in terms of their international travel because um, they could very well find themselves in situations similar as Meng Wanzhou uh, with Western countries attempting to prosecute them for uh, their own uh, misdeeds. And that's basically what the judge signaled, because the judge said this is a fraud charge, and if we didn't extradite someone on fraud, uh, it would basically prevent uh, the application of domestic and international just, uh, justice for one of the most basic crimes that is recognized in all societies. Uh, you just said, Christian... If she is uh, if she is convicted of this charge and then uh, and moves through the system, the uh, extradition system, and ends up in the United States, she could either let it go to trial or unpack it all and basically confess what it's about. What are the chances of that? Would would she turn against uh, the communist uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, in order to save the company? Would would we see that? Well, she wouldn't be the first member of the Chinese elite who ended up hedging their bets with the United States uh, when push comes to shove. And um, How do you sell that in China? Um, well, I think this is part of the concern by the, uh, by the Chinese regime, right? That uh, uh, the, the U.S. prosecutors will 
likely give her options. Um, and it's going to be much faster and easier for U.S. prosecutors to get all the intelligence they can from her and let her go in return and live a happy life, uh, a happy free life in the United States, as, of course, many Chinese would like to do. Uh, I mean, even the president, uh, President Xi's own daughter is currently studying in the United States, something that is not widely reported. Um, so, uh, look, I think there's probably a better chance than, uh, than people make it out. And, of course, this is part of the way uh, the Chinese elite often uh, conducts its own business dealings that, uh, you know, if you're no longer useful to a company or the Chinese regime, uh, you'll get arrested or you'll get stripped of your company or your assets uh, and so forth. And so loyalty uh, is not a, uh, a predominant uh, paradigm in the way that the Chinese elite deals with each other. Uh, and so I think this is why there is some concern about what might possibly be the consequences uh, if she actually were extradited. But of course, the value of what she has to offer um, becomes deflationary. So it starts to decline over time because mm. it becomes less relevant of what she knows. So the longer that the Chinese and, and herself can stretch out the extradition, uh, the lower the value of any intelligence that the U.S. might be able to glean from her. We've certainly heard that those that turn against the uh, the Chinese Communist Party, family members feel that ba- back home. Obviously, this is royalty back home. Uh, if she turns against China here, stays in America or, or North America, and, and lives the life uh, as a Huawei executive trying to promote the company, what does that mean for her family back in China? Uh, well... Uh, I mean, given that uh, effectively her father built uh, the empire, um, the consequences would be interesting. Uh, would be interesting to watch, but uh, uh, we would likely see, I think, the family um, removed um, from the company under spurious grounds by the uh, by the regime and the company itself appropriated uh, by uh, by the state. Because of course, Huawei currently is not technically a state-owned enterprise. It is often confused as such, um, but Huawei already has pretty close connections to the state. And so um, if uh, the Chinese uh, political elite felt it was expeditious for the regime to turn the company into a state-owned enterprise, um, Huawei would not be the first uh, company that would uh, succumb to that fate. Uh, China, again, we, we have, they have been dealing with China over the last decades. For 20 years ago, they were the golden goose. This is where the future was and such. Now we see China with a completely different tarnished, tarnished image on the world stage. Is this what China is looking for? Why don't they uh, back off a bit and be less aggressive on the world stage? Is this not harming them more than helping them? So that's a great question because, of course, we've seen a considerable change in both tone and tactics by the Chinese regime, especially in in recent weeks, where for a long time it was about soft power, it was about uh, trying to charm other countries and the global community. Um, and uh, I think th- what we've seen is a real sort of reaction by a wounded, you know, what I call a wounded panda bear, um, lashing out um, because of the challenges of the legitimacy, uh, legitimacy that the regime faces. I mean, the security law on Hong Kong, I think, is also intended to distract from the internal troubles within China, uh, best sort of to deflect from uh, from your internal struggles um, and try to find a way to reunite the citizenry um, ultimately um, behind you. Um, and so I think this we will see more of, 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 of these efforts by China to defend itself um, and its 
uh, interests. Um, the memories that shaped this, on the one hand, the chaos uh, from the late 19th century through to the 20th century, that was very traumatic for China and for Chinese citizens. And so I think Xi likes to play on that um, as um, uh, that he's defending the honor of China and that countries like Canada are somehow besmirching uh, that greatness and that honor through the application of our independent rule of law and justice. So that's how he will be portraying it. Uh, but Jesus, I think, is also, these are people who grew up in the Cultural Revolution, and there's nothing that I think frightens President Xi more uh, than chaos and disorder. And so I think what he's seeing is, uh, for instance, in Hong Kong, the danger of spillover effects of protests in the aftermath of the virus and people's dissatisfaction with the regime. And so uh, the regime will want to preserve order in China because any authoritarian regime has one singular objective, which is regime preservation. And so the Chinese regime will do whatever it takes to keep the Chinese political and economic elite um, in power, and that will determine its actions both domestically um, and internationally going forward. And the Chinese regime currently is seriously threatened. At the same time, I think we need to leave it up to the Chinese to draw their own conclusions about their regime. Uh, it's not for us, I think, to tell other countries how to run themselves. Um, and so we need to respect that sovereignty. We wouldn't have, want to have other countries tell us how to run our own uh, affairs. Um, and I think there's a lot of people in China who are thinking that perhaps um, uh, there may be better ways to run their own country. But as Canadians, we also want to remember that um, if we're afraid of a strong China and an aggressive China, I think the only thing that may be more dangerous for the world community is a weak China, because a weak China, let alone a China that implodes internally, we saw what sort of chaos uh, that resulted in for decades throughout the region. And so I think we all have an interest in uh, um, in a China that hopefully sees uh, the ways of the world and reforms and becomes a more uh, competent and responsible member of the international community. Uh, I think no one has an interest in a, a Chinese collapse or implosion uh, of the regime that we currently have. Christian, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, and I hope you are too. Sounds like you are, Scott. So Yeah, cool. you know. What do you do, eh? You know, once you get cabin fever, it's almost like being drunk. <laughs> 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 All right, enough of that. So what are your thoughts? I mean, Trump is shooting the messenger here. Isn't this his best friend? How can he start crapping all over Twitter? Well, it's about time, isn't it, Scott? You know, he's yeah. been bending the facts since he since 2016. And now finally, Twitter has grown a pair of cojones, and they're actually one of the last platforms to uh, to quite frank, to start fact-checking, because even uh, even Facebook has been putting uh, controls in about misinformation, especially around COVID-19. I know that Instagram stories have been doing that, too, since it started in March. So, you know, here comes Twitter, not necessarily talking about COVID, but at least getting on the platform or getting on the bandwagon to say, you know what, it's about time that we hold our platform up to higher standards, and then when the President of the United States, who loves to use us as his 
spokesperson. He is his own press secretary, to be quite honest, even though he has one. We really need to start holding his feet to the fire and actually, you know, giving us some credibility ourselves by saying, you need to fact check this statement. And as we know what the result was, he went through the roof. Uh, is Twitter cutting its own throat here? I mean, obviously, uh, the, you know, I mean, if you talk to a young person in regard to Twitter, they don't care about that. It's like for old people, you know, it's like Facebook. Uh, so is Twitter cutting its own throat here by, in a sense, uh, uh, Donald Trump has kept this format alive? I, I don't think so. In fact, it seems that this action has driven more eyeballs to Twitter. I can't quantify that, but, you know, even by my own behavior, Twitter is not something that I, I mean, honestly, if you look at Twitter now, it is it is really a cesspool where yeah. anybody living in a basement eating grilled cheese sandwiches who doesn't normally interact with society can mm-hmm. say whatever they want about whatever they want. And I try and I have basically stayed off it more often than not, especially since mid-March. However, you know, when I heard that what they were doing was in essence sort of fact-checking or at least telling the, uh, the general public Droves of whom are still on Twitter, Scott. So even though young people aren't on it, you know, people who are maybe 25 plus or even 35 plus are still on it. It made mm-hmm. me go to Trump's account and scroll through the litany of tweets. And ever since that he was, quote unquote, censored in this very passive aggressive way, he went on a storm of tweets. So what it's doing, I think, is that it's, it's saying to the public, what, come back. We're actually starting to provide uh, a sense of fact-checking for you so that you don't necessarily have to believe everything you read from one of the highest offices of the land. So let me ask you, or, or put it this way, you, you talked about it, and many will agree with you, this that Twitter has become a cesspool of, of one extreme to the other. Uh, does putting these fact-checking notes next to uh, Donald Trump's tweet does this rise them above that cesspool, out of that cesspool? Does it does it prove to users, see, look, we do have uh, quality control here? Well, I'm saying it's a first step. I'm not saying that everything has been washed away. And now that they've done this, they've, they're certain they've started to enter the, the pantheon of all that is good and all that is right. But it's certainly a step in the right direction. And what we're talking about here is optics. Listen, there's still plenty wrong with Facebook. But, you know, at least they're trying by putting in programs that, you know, uh, at least alert us to what news, um, what sources we should be paying attention to and what we shouldn't. So, yeah, Twitter is definitely the last in line to do this. And they're not going to go whole hog and monitor everybody's tweet. But at least they're taking a first step. So in terms of optics, it looks like they're being part of the good guys. So where does this go from here? Because obviously it sounds like Twitter's not going to, they're not going to stop. He's not going to stop. Where does this go? Well, you know, if they're not going to pick and choose parties, they really need to do this with everybody. So, you know, all political leaders need to be wary that if they are not rock solid in their facts that they're putting out on Twitter, then there is a big problem because Twitter has to hold all world leaders to account at this point. You just can't choose Trump. Because maybe you like him and maybe you don't. Really, you know, if Joe Biden puts out something that bears fact-checking, they're going to have to do that. If Angela Merkel puts out something that bears fact-checking, well, maybe they're going to do that too. So, you know, what we're asking is how long is a piece of string? We don't know. We don't know how 
deep they want to go with this action. But I think that uh, we'll be all watching very carefully in the coming days and weeks. All right, Bree, being the branding expert that you are, I can't let you go without asking you what your thoughts are on uh, what happened yesterday in a B.C. Supreme Court where the Huawei CFO uh, lost her first, I'm sure, of a couple of challenges against her extradition hearing. Uh, she was on the steps uh, along with Huawei execs and family on Saturday taking a picture. Uh, the CBC caught this uh, with holding up the victory sign as if they were going to walk away with this. And even Chinese media was saying this was all but a done deal. She would be home soon. Uh, now this has happened. What does this do to not only the Huawei brand, but for those that ha- have have chose to invest or, or look to uh, China as a as a golden goose sort of thing? Wh- where does this leave the brand? really really interesting and and you know uh, she has really played the media uh from day one you know she going for what i call fashion walks with her uh homing device on her ankle so you know you see yeah. her pair of louis Vuitton, um christian louboutins and above it is a fashionably yeah. attached <laughs> monitoring device so you know she's really played the media and I am surprised that, and I think everybody's surprised that it did not go her way. And the other thing that I always think about is, you know, what does this mean for the two Michaels that are yeah. still held in captivity in China? You know, what does that mean for them? Unless, does it mean that, you know what, one doesn't uh, equate the other in the way we're thinking, uh, that we're tired of playing uh, a game where we're always trying to appease China? It's a very interesting change in direction. So, you know, what that means for investors, I don't know. I think this is just the first step in a very, very long um, political journey. Are you surprised that, and I mean, there's been recent polling on this this week, uh, I mean, numbers over 80%, people are upset about this. They're upset with the, and we should we, we should clarify this, this is not about directing uh, any hate towards the Chinese people. This is about the yeah. Chinese Communist Party uh, that rule this authoritarian state. Um, but, you know, you can, you know, at one point, this was the golden goose. I remember talking on, on shows 10 years ago and it was my goodness you had to get your money into china you had to do this ba 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 they were turning the corner they were going to be more like us now that has all changed how long is it going to take for them to win back world trust not just canada or the united states but the world um this this is a really long slow climb and listen uh, china has never changed Maybe they outwardly change, but, you know, inwards, they have always been the same. So, yeah, maybe all investors hoped that, you know, with a billion people and a million and that huge, huge market to obtain that, yeah, let's let's believe what we want. Let's believe what we want to hear. But at the end of the day, the Chinese have never changed. They've held very fast to their own philosophy and their own mandate. So, you know, layer that on top of how the world perceives the way uh, China told or didn't tell or wasn't fully transparent in terms of what was going on with COVID-19 in their own country. So there's a lot of hills to climb and none of which are easy. So, you know, Huawei is just one in terms of, you know, how do you regain trust in the brand. But there's a bigger issue, and that is when we talk about um, the responsibility of world health. So let me ask you this question, and uh, and again, we don't have much time left, but Huawei, a major sponsor of hockey in Canada. We see that uh, during the intermission and such. 
if you're if you're hockey, if you're one of these spon- uh, people that are involved in sponsor sponsorships, what what does this brand mean now? Uh, you know, if you put that up above uh, all the commentators talking about hockey, how does that resonate? You know what? I think that this is uh, really money versus morals. And it really depends on which side of the line you lie. Um, if it's important for you to keep your sponsorship and you can sort of swallow it, then, you know, you just sort of talk about this as a business transaction and that this has nothing, uh, there's no political attachments. But I'd like to know where that dividing line is because there is no dividing line. One is the other and the other is, is definitely attached to this. So, I think that sponsor the, those who procure sponsorships are going to have to uh, take a long, hard look. You know, for example, we don't allow tobacco sponsorships. Yeah. And that has held strong and fast for, what, the last two decades, maybe even mm-hmm. more. So is that going to be the same with Huawei? I don't know. But uh, those who do procure sponsorships are going to have to take a long, hard look on what they will allow and what they won't allow. But, you know, money talks, Scott. That's true. Alyssa Freeman with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.